0: to a better way the podcast a better way is a network of people here in the uk who are striving to improve services build community and create a fairer society
1: the aim of the podcast is to showcase stories about new and often radically better ways of transforming the way we do things mainly by focusing on four areas one putting relationships first two listening to each other three, sharing and building power, and four, joining forces.
0: I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter.
1: And I'm Roger Martin. I'm the co-founder of The Mindset Difference, which is a small leadership and team development practice based in southwest London.
0: So, Roger, we're about to meet Paul White. Exciting. What are you excited about?
1: Well, I know Paul from the Better Way Network. I think he's got a really interesting take on place and placemaking and the role care plays within that across all sectors and how technology supports it so that's what I'm looking forward to hearing more about.
0: Yeah the technology bit fascinates me because I think even though it's starting to be used more to help create better ways of doing things. I think it's massively underused still. Um, And so I'm really interested to hear about how Paul is using technology to really help create his community vision in Devon. I can't wait to meet him.
1: Welcome to A Better Way.
0: Yeah, lovely to meet
1: you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to it. So Paul, we kind of like to start each episode by giving you some space to tell us about the field you work in or the world you think, you know, the world you see yourself occupying, the job you've got, you know, however you think about the the role that you have in life to just paint a picture of that for us.
2: I always find it quite difficult, actually, in some respects because it's it's so large. And when I put, talk about it to people, people often comment that it's so large. But I guess um, having sort of followed and pursued a professional career for a, a long time and, and the goals of wealth that usually get associated with that, I, I, I came to the frustration of not achieving what I wanted to achieve in that space and probably realizing that actually that I was chasing the wrong dream. And I happened across the nonprofit sector and what the nonprofit sector was doing within our society, within our communities. And so, in most recent years, I found myself wanting to champion that sector and what it does and try to bring much more awareness and um, clarity around the value of what the nonprofit sector does. But um, it's, it's turned out that that's actually very large. And what they do is very large, and the impact they have is very large. So, sort of trying to. Um, manage that has become quite challenging um but but it's a it's a fantastic space to be in you know it gives me hope whenever i open up my computer and i start looking at my data around what the non-profit sector does i just find so much positivity in it despite all that's going on so so in a sort of career sense i'm in the happiest place i've ever been in but probably now the most challenging space i've ever been in
1: what what was the um part of the system you were in that was curtailing your dreams that was constraining what you thought was possible?
2: I guess when I finally came of age and realised I needed to pursue a career and earn a living and make a contribution I I was fortunate enough to land a role in the NHS um, working background administration so not frontline but uh, working for what was called then a family practitioner committee very fancy name and I, I was just enthralled by it by you know this feeling of providing services that were supporting people in one way or another, even if it was indirect. And um the sense of how everybody was committed to the task. You know, people um always went the extra mile to try to do something, you know, and if it came to five o'clock there was no sort of down tools and go home. People stayed if there was something that needed doing. And so you I, I immediately got tuned into this sense of, you know, benevolence of doing good. And um and I was fortunate enough as well to um, become introduced to technology right at the early stage. So back when PCs didn't have windows on them and they were command line driven. And, and, and so I was at the beginning of that sort of revolution of digitization of, of services and solutions. And I pursued that with great vigor for quite a, a period of time within the public sector. So working through health authorities and, and engaging around programs that were looking at technology, um, creating efficiency and operating capability, improved operating capability. And then I pursued that with great vigour for quite a number of years, Um, but, but I did become frustrated that um, while there were very great opportunities for very significant transformation of that whole service delivery approach and how we could improve things, we never quite got there. We changed a lot and we did lots of good change, but we really didn't transform things. And so I began to sort of take a step back and say, well, why aren't we transforming things? What is going on? And... Um, I guess the fundamental thing that came to me was the realisation that we were really not doing anything at all around early intervention, prevention of any substance. We were responding to people coming through the door with illness or with challenges or with problems. And everything was almost geared to performance managing and measuring that and the performance of that. Um, And that struck me as being perverse, you know, because... The idea surely had to be about stopping people from needing to go into hospital and things like that. So I I became frustrated that we weren't really affecting positive change in that respect and that we were sort of persistently responding to crisis all the time. And it just didn't seem right. So that's when I sort of decided, right, I need to change. I need to find a better way. (laughs) So that's what I've been pursuing ever since.
0: That resonates with me a lot having moved from the commercial sector into the charity sector um, in order to be able to make more of a difference. But I'm I'm really interested to ask you, so maybe you share a bit of this. When I moved into the charity sector, absolutely it was possible to make more of a difference, 100%. But uh, there was still a need for a better way, without a doubt. And I just wonder kind of how you came to that realisation that, Yes, absolutely the not for profit sector is doing fantastic things, but um in many ways perhaps too much seeking to emulate other sectors. And and you know, what was it for you? Um, was there a kind of moment when you when you suddenly thought, yeah, but there's still a need for a better way uh yes. within the not for profit sector?
2: Oh, very much so, yes. I think um I mean the first stage of the journey, I was sort of using my analytical skills and my business analyst approach to, you know, systems, I guess. And and, and so I, I started out examining the non-profit sector to try and get an understanding of it. How big was it? You know, what was it involved in? What was it not doing, if anything? And, um, and yes, straight away, a, a picture emerged of, of, of a sector doing really tremendous stuff but massive of opportunity for doing it smarter and more effectively and more efficiently. And and the thing I tapped into, I think, that sort of drew me to that understanding of clarity was this sort of, there was a conversation happening um, largely through public health, um, but around placemaking and around trying to understand the collective needs of place and then perhaps look at how the system and the different service provisions could come together. And I realised there that, you know, uh, in that conversation, the nonprofit sector was operating in that very thematic based approach that the public sector was. So it was either housing or it was homelessness or it was poverty or it was something else. It wasn't there wasn't anybody sort of sitting over the top of things and going, well, we need one of those and one of those and two of those and three of those. And we need it all to come together to, to you know, take that person on a journey from this point to that point, which is a much more positive outcome. And it's a collaborative thing. And so that's what I've come to focus on I guess in in sort of now being able to sort of describe the landscape. I can now say here are perhaps the opportunities, and some of it's technology, there's opportunities around technology, but actually a lot of it is just around working in smarter ways and being and taking a different approach and a different outlook. so there's a lot in that obviously um but yeah,
0: and technology sort of as a as an enabler of that, but not an end in itself. Yes, can you talk a bit about? Really thinking big then around the kind of change that you think a better way is all about, if you like, or that it's been all about for you. What's the sort of real goal? What's your vision of what can be achieved by doing things in in the different way that you have seen is so important?
2: Yeah, I I, I can because I've got a cunning plan (laughs) that I'm working on at the moment. We
0: love a cunning plan
2: you've also got a personal
1: story connected to that haven't you
2: yes the the other thing i think um and it's good to sort of pick up on that because that did that's what's really underwritten all of my investment of time and effort today and so it's very selfish really (laughs) that in 2016 I was diagnosed with two long-term chronic conditions literally one after the other and it was a bit of a shock to get that diagnosis and the first thing I did really I came home and I thought well what's out there that I could tap into that could help me understand what you know the situation I find myself in and how might I get support and I think the first thing that struck me was in parallel to me sort of beginning to map out this non-profit sector was how difficult it was to find information of these different services that were being provided. And It was quite um, a surprise. And the other thing that really, I guess, was significant was thinking, uh, being a typical male, um, I'm shocked that I've got this diagnosis, but you know what, I don't really feel that bad and I don't know that I need to do that much about it, you know? And so I sort of didn't. I kept it to myself for a little bit until eventually I did disclose and share with my wife the diagnosis I'd had and the and the treatment that I needed to be um
0: so you, you initially didn't share it with your wife even
2: no I sort of I guess I was a bit dismissive of it in some respects because I didn't I, I while I obviously had symptoms and that's what drove me to getting a diagnosis I thought they were solvable myself and I didn't really need to burden anybody else I could just crack on and I'll I'll come out the other side one way or another. But obviously, over a period of time, I realized that wasn't going to happen. And I think that was helped as well, um, sadly, by another diagnosis for another condition. So it's now gone from two to three and more recently a fourth. So it's sort of a recognition that actually I've definitely seriously got to do some things different in my lifestyle. And to do that, I need help. Obviously, there was that trawl around privately to the non-profit sector to see, well, who was out there could support me. And I couldn't find anybody immediately. And it wasn't that they weren't there. It's just that they don't really advertise and promote themselves particularly well. So this is where the technological opportunity comes in, even if it's just a web page. But the other aspect was, you know, the realization that actually I don't really care for myself as well as my wife cares for me. And yet she's not including the conversation unless I bring her into it. And certainly... When we think of the system and the doctor and the GP and the hospital and the clinicians, the conversation they have is all a one-to-one with me, and they don't share with anything else. In fact, it's impossible almost for them to share with anything else. And so we suddenly have this disconnect of this primary carer, my wife, has no inkling or clue and isn't empowered to care in that process. And that was the real turning point for me. So you know, appreciate Roger referencing that because um, that's quite fundamental.
0: That's so interesting because it really, on a personal level, illustrates the power of and absolute necessity of information sharing. Yes. And yet we are we work and live within systems that absolutely do not do that. Almost like yes. the default is not to. Yes. It's almost like they're all men, actually. <laughs> oh, and they are. Funny <laughs> that <laughs> you know. Um, I'm only going to, but you know what I mean? It's like the the default is not, not to share. um, And, you know, that there's so much issues caused because
1: of that. And I suspect that's
2: behind your cunning plan. It it is. I think the, you know, the the realisation was that we actually care for others better than we care for ourselves. So my wife, you know, she has some situations she needs to imagine. I probably spend more time looking after her and and trying to help her than I do help myself. But conversely, it's true the other way around. And I started to think about this, this sort of unit of care and support and think about that non-profit sector. How did it come to life? Why are people doing what they're doing? And it's because they care. You know, everybody cares. And I guess the phrase that came to me was that the problem is we're not being empowered to the care to, care to the best of our ability. And so then it's, it, when I start to look at the better way of a system, it's then how do we enact that empowerment of care? How do we share that information, that knowledge that, that um, capability, so that we improve our situation, you know, as individuals, as families, as, as communities. And, and I think that's what's driven me now to where I'm and what I'm doing today. Um, it's that realisation that everybody does actually care. It's just that we, we need to help people to care better. And um, there's lots of opportunity to do that.
0: So can you explain what is this change that you're part of?
2: Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm obviously living in Devon, so I've done an awful lot of work profiling and using Devon as an example for very selfish reasons, of course, as well. But um, I think Devon is quite a, a fairly representative of the rest of the country to some degree. Obviously, you've got inner city London areas, which will be quite different. But in the main, um, it, it paints a picture that I think we can understand to be universal. So the first thing um, in my engagement with the public sector as an independent person sort of representing the VCSE sector, I've been trying to help the authorities themselves, the integrated care system project and program, the local authority, different departments, and to understand the opportunity of what exists within the community. Um, that work, you know, I surfaced up six and a half thousand registered nonprofits just in Devon, Torbay, and Plymouth alone. 1.5 billion of annual activity and circa of 100,000 people engaged on a paid and voluntary basis. So, you know, 10% of the population is quite proactive in servicing that non-profit sector activity. Wow. That was staggering in itself. And, and actually, when I have put that across the table in various meetings, it's been quite a revelation all round, you know. I bet, yeah. And of course, you know, so that's Devon. That's replicated in every single county.
0: Quite inspiring for people, I would think. Like when you present people with those figures, they probably are quite inspired by that, I would think.
2: Uh, Definitely. Yes. The interesting thing, though, I think it becomes the the opportunity of perhaps the better way of finding that better way suddenly becomes enormous. And that in itself becomes a problem. It's it's overwhelming almost. And so the conversation quickly goes into, well, great, but God, where do we start? How do we how do we use this in a meaningful way? Um, And so literally, you know, it's taken sort of two years of conversation really to start to bring that down to a narrative of saying, well, how can we practically engage with this knowledge and, you know, these resources that are out there and and in a sensible way as well? Because, you know, um, if we take the integrated care system initiative at the moment, um, the reality of that initiative is it's responding to a current crisis that's going to be an ongoing crisis for a number of years. It's, you know, We're not going to solve things quickly there. Um, so they're looking at the non-profit sector and the engagement and collaboration that could you know, happen as being a means of helping them to resolve their crisis. But in the same vein, the non-profit sector has its own crisis. You know, the cost of living rise is starting to impact the value of the pound and donations. We're starting to see people actually step back from making donations because they're no longer able to afford it. So there's a huge financial impact starting to land in Devon alone. And, and everywhere so if we don't recognize that and 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 establish the better way that that can address that then actually we're not going to achieve a great deal and, and one of the things I think is quite important so to, to sort of add impetus to this conversation around trying to get to that early interventional provincial and away from crisis I realized that we didn't value it so I did some research, uh, it took quite a few years and I had to go to lots of different places but what I did was I researched all the different articles I could find that I'd, un- I'd looked at the social and economic impact of different well-being concerns uh, all across you know uh, criminal justice system, welfare, health, social care, education and um. Throughout all the studies, I sort of re-engineered the numbers to get to a unit value. And then I went to Devon's Joint Strategic Needs Assessment, which tells us the needs of the county that are there. And I applied the unit values to those needs to actually quantify a social and economic cost of that unmet need. And, and it exceeds £3 billion of lost social and economic opportunity.
0: Just in Devon.
2: Just in Devon. So nationally, you can imagine it's astronomical.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And um, and, and that really opened my eyes to the ludicrous nature of the fact that we're not actually investing well enough in early intervention prevention. Um, and it's because, you know, before now, we couldn't measure it. So I'm, I'm hoping that what I've produced, can we can stand up And this is one of the solutions as a well-being measure that people could apply. So um, local community innovators and entrepreneurs that are looking to stand up a new community service provision can tap into those numbers and add those numbers to their business case. And hopefully that will accelerate
1: them being able to get the resources they need to get going. In a previous life, I I was an accountant. right? Can you just explain that three billion again, just so it's clear for the audience? 3 billion of unmet need. Paint, paint a picture of what that actually means.
2: Yeah. So um, in the every county, every public health area has to produce what they call a strategic needs assessment, which is basically looking at the population, some of its real numbers, but some of its estimated. But, but the idea is it's, it's a determination of what sorts of things do the population need support and assistance with. And it and it does go beyond just health care. You know, it's into social care as well and other educational factors, you know. And so the obvious headlines that we hear about frequently is obesity, isn't it? And smoking, for example. But it, there's lots more to that. And so what's happened over many years is lots of different academic um, researchers have undertaken studies to look at a specific theme like smoking or uh, coronary heart disease or whatever it might be and and explored it in the context of understanding the social and economic cost within that there is direct public service cost for example so you know um, somebody would be suffering a uh, an event that meant, means they have to have the, a hospital treatment or a hospital intervention so they perhaps end up in A&E and there's an associated cost attached to that and then there's the treatment while they're in the hospital and then there's the post-hospital treatment that might need to carry on after they come out so it's looking at those direct costs but then also looking at the lost if you like economic opportunity of somebody not being able to work and so therefore there's a loss sort of in productivity of and I think in some cases as well it's gone further to look at the impact it might have had on others in family you know so we hear all the time for example about unpaid carers and the contribution the very significant contribution they made and I'm mindful that in the news today we're we're hearing about the um people that are not contributing economically and we want to try and get them into contributing economically but I wonder how many of those are actually unpaid carers that can't contribute economically because their life is dedicated to providing care to somebody else so it'd be really interesting to see what the actual numbers of that look like but so it's that context you know it's the it's the social impact as well as direct costs that are uh, drawn out of the public service system as well as consequential costs that might you know come into play.
1: So it takes a kind of in the round holistic yeah. view of a place, really.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think if you yeah, so the idea of the measures that I produced, this' uh, calling it the sort of social return on investment measure, so it's it sort of goes beyond social value. It's looking at those well-being um, impacts and then saying if we can then um you know come together to resolve the collective challenges of place those measures then start to give us some way of understanding outcomes and hopefully um what i'd i'd like to think is that ultimately it can sit alongside this gdp and growth perspective so we're not entirely focused on just gdp and growth that we're saying can we pursue gdp and growth but in a well way <laughs> without making people sick, you know, as we we go through that process? Can we understand what a well community looks like?
0: And that's incredibly radical, isn't it? Because actually, you know, the way in which the whole um, public and voluntary sector system is designed is absolutely not that. It's a kind of crisis often caused actually by system failure, which is then somebody picks up the pieces of crisis intervention probably temporarily and you know and it goes round and round I guess one of my questions would be though so because that is how the system works that's how all of us are conditioned to access the system we're conditioned to access support in a crisis we're not conditioned to come anywhere near in fact you know that's almost like the last thing you want is to come anywhere near a service uh, at the you know at the first sign of a problem you're like oh god the last thing i want is services involved in my life and i just wonder how we overcome that so that we can you know at, at the sort of at the interface with people end of it if you like
2: yeah uh, that, that's quite uh neat because that dovetails into the next solution i'm sort of proposing but so the you're right and uh, um i mean In my analysis of the nonprofit sector, I would say it's closer to early intervention than anything else, Um, but it's not quite there. And And the reason it's not quite there is I think because in itself, it's not able to transfer some of the skills and capability it's got back into the community directly into people's homes, if you like. So we come back to me and my wife's scenario, you know, how does my wife gain access to intelligence and information that just helps her to care for me better? And then conversely, how does it work the other way around? And I think that's this that's the, the the bit that's missing in the jigsaw at the moment. Um, so one of the things, you know, so so if we if we just sort of, you know, take a line at the minute, we recognise that we've got this massive public sector doing stuff. And it's you know, in Devon, it's about three point four billion pounds worth of spending the NHS and local authority alone. And then we take the nonprofit sector, six and a half thousand organizations, hundred thousand people, one point five billion, and yet in the middle of those two is still sat this three billion pounds worth of unmet need so so what that says to me is that if we're going to deliver any substantive change and turnaround in that state we need more resource and capacity so the then question comes to well where do we get the more resource from and well that's the people in the homes that's how we you know if we can train them to be more early interventional and preventional to see the crisis emerging and start to reach out to get the support for them to help the other individual, if it's not directly for the individual themselves, then suddenly we genuinely have an early intervention, prevention approach taking place. So it's so I think that bringing things to that place based view. So the the other proposition is to map literally everything. So we we there's an initiative that local authorities pursue called asset based community development. Um, where well, basically they map the nonprofit sector, so I'm going a bit further and saying, well, let's map the entire commercial sector as well um because i i and again this was a revelation to me you know ninety nine percent of the businesses in the uk are sMEs very small businesses actually in Devon of the forty seven thousand registered business thirty seven thousand employ less than four people. so their community service offerings, even if they're not social enterprises and they're offering you know for profit based businesses. They're still very community-orientated and focused on what they're doing and their connection points. So it's it then starts to say, well, the system needs to include them as well as the non-profits. And I think that's how we potentially have the ability to start to increase in capacity and bring some new resource to the whole process. Um, the other element is that Um, by having it visually accessible in a map form you know really simple click this is where I live oh this is what's around me here's all the different services and here's the different types and here's what they're doing Um, there must be thousands if there's a hundred thousand people that do get off their sofa and go out and do something charitable or benevolent is there another hundred thousand that are sat there wanting to do something but don't know where to go and how to start so if we can give them the ability to see the place they live in and what's going on in place, maybe another 50,000 will go, Oh, I can join that, I'll do that, or I can provide something there. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be just time. It could be the local builder recognising that their village hall needs a new roof and they're struggling to raise the money. And he just says, well, I'll donate time
0: Totally. and do it
2: and um, or or local accountants or whatever saying yeah. I can support that charity over there that's trying to get going I'll give them some accountancy support and advice
0: I think that also breaks down the boundaries doesn't it between charities and just people's lives because um, actually you know working for the charity sector quite a long time we can be really really smug about the fact that we're the people that are doing good but actually you know everybody has to make a living in some way and people who make a living by start particularly starting up a business in their local community actually have just as much desire often to be part of that community and benefit the community as people who go and work for a charity and everyone's to, you know trying to make a living at the end of the day yeah do you know what i mean and so yes. i think i think it's really important kind of there is a there is a sort of sometimes a bit of a moral high ground about charities and the people who work in them that is extremely unappealing i find
2: yes i think i think i mean some of that's been created by the system evolved as well isn't it the sort of commissioning model you know charities actually having to compete for really limited pots and all sorts
0: oh completely and it can make charities more cutthroat than your local business actually that's just getting on with them.
2: and i think you know when i talk about devon you know there's six and a half thousand there that four you know four thousand four and a half thousand of those are charity voluntary community um one and a half thousand are social enterprises there's a question about at what point um, do we need to ensure there's sustainability and resilience in the service provision how uh, more appropriate might be for some of those charities to shift to become social enterprise and start generating revenues and you know surpluses if you like that can help them to actually invest in innovation themselves because again some of the commission services that you know they call it the race to the bottom don't they they're sort of commissioned at the lowest price point so there's there's absolutely no capacity built within them to innovate and do something new and
0: and they're also part of that system. So often, you know, my in my view, they're kind of commissioned by the public sector to pick up the pieces of its failings. Yes. So it goes round and round and round, and actually it's part of why I'm very interested in your work as well, because of its potential to help open up the better way network to the bit more people from the business community.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think there's a shift I see out there, you know, corporate social responsibility, B Corp, the big one for the corporates, but at the lowest level, you know, it is I think about helping people to just reconnect in their community, you know, the local hairdresser. And I think, again, the idea of social prescribing off the back of the asset-based community. So why is it if the hairdresser is listening to, you know, the resident, describing their woes and challenges that they're having, but they couldn't social prescribe them themselves and say, well, look, here's an organisation just down the road here that might be able to help you and have that awareness by being able to put the pin in the map and say, well, what's around me? Suddenly we've increased the knowledge of here's the support.
0: When I was working in domestic abuse in various contexts at Women's Aid and also heading up a commission for Barking and Dagenham Council, one of the things we looked at was, where do people go in their community to talk um, and potentially disclose significant issues that are happening in their lives? And unfortunately, it's very rarely public services in, as the first port of call, and even very rarely uh, the charity, the conventional charity sector. And when you talk about people like hairdressers, it really made me think of that, because absolutely, you know, they know a lot of information about their customers and have a lot of um potential to to provide help
2: yeah 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 i think through that that's how we can start to resolve some of the resource capacity and challenges we have um and so yeah so i think there's the combination of new ways of understanding the value proposition in itself and what it means in terms of outcomes um with that intelligence set that very simply says if i put a pin in this place this is what is around me and i think then through that we start to have a different conversation around placemaking genuinely. We start to say, well, um, do we need, you know, and one of the ideas I'm kicking around at the minute is, is it possible to form like a virtual cooperative where, you know, the combined social chari- uh, social enterprises and charities can carry on in their same governance structure and construct and their mission, but, but they can become part of a more broader cooperative that enables that collaboration and Um, cross-service engagement in servicing people's needs so that you end up with a proper joined up approach while people are still pursuing their own sort of individual missions and I think there's some great opportunity for that and there's some models out there I've started to come across as well that look really exciting so I think the other element I'm trying to introduce with that um, is sociocracy and, and an adoption of that as an approach in the way that we engage so th- there's lots and lots of talk about co-design of services and hearing the lived and living experience of people coming into that co-design the practicalities of that are quite challenging so in the model of the business that I'm trying to build to service the delivery of those solutions I'm trying to make it one where genuine lived and living experience can come to the table become a member of the business in itself so it can contribute the needs that it, that they have and then the business does respond to those needs and so we end up building what I would like to think are true fit for purpose solutions that can sit back into those communities in a way that will generally deliver you know measurable outcomes and benefits um, but it's also to recognize from the technological world the opportunity of trying to do things using um technological methods like agile where you don't have to have all the answers to find the end solution you just have to know where to start and we start and then as we progress we'll learn and we'll discover and so we adapt and change and so don't get too worried you
0: started in the wrong place
2: yeah so, so 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 the idea is you genuinely land yourself with a process of continuous improvement there's never an end and so you know when we come to um, there was a question posed on a on a recent meeting at uh, Roger was party to about um, why it was a better way and not the better way. And for me, the difference is that the better way suggests that you reach an end and a conclusion and it stops.
0: Exactly. Whereas a
2: better way says every day, there's still something better that you can do. And I, I think that's the reality. Our system, you know, and that's where, if I roll back to the public sector, those big transformation change programs that were supposed to change the world, they didn't. you know, And they were always set on a premise of this is the budget and at the end of this budget we'll have stopped and we'll have achieved everything. And the world doesn't work like that. It, it needs agility, it needs iter- iteration, you know, and thats we need that embedded now, not just in the way that we deliver our technology, but in the way we construct our businesses and our services.
0: Can I just ask a quick question? So you're talking about bringing use the jargon lived experience into this approach that you're talking about and I just wondered um you know previously before that you were talking about um social value and proving social value and I just you know obviously those two things need to come together so the 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 social value is is defined by the people who uh supposedly the the change resides in if you like and i just wondered if you were starting to kind of square that circle
2: yeah very much so and i think again the sort of measures that we've established are a starter for 10 and they sort of set the tone of the conversation perhaps but but the reality of it is they, they because of the way i want to sort of open up the ownership of that business solution is that it will be constantly changed and fed this new set of ideas and and challenges that people experience, and they will drive the change of how this model describes the outcomes that they they've achieved or want to achieve. So, so we make it as personal as it possibly can be, because I think that's that's the other thing, isn't it? When you you get sucked into the system, you become. I mean, I I was always a little bit staggered when I was working in transformation and change programs. How sometimes you'd have a social worker working alongside you on trying to do some sort of systems change, and they were taking a very business-like view. And they seem to be wearing this sort of business hat that was disconnected from the care that I thought they were sort of being commissioned to provide as their role. And yet when they left work, you know, you'd know, you find out that actually they had an elderly relative they were carrying in. So they switched from the corporate social worker mode to just the personal person code. And it's sort of, it's the way the system's created us in some respects.
0: And I think it's it's surviving individuals surviving within a system that that requires a huge amount of um uh effort on behalf of people who work in it um but also so it is and is very stressful and actually doesn't always show you know value the kind of human connections that you're forging as a professional is valuing other things. So it's actually going right back to what you were saying, isn't it, about what we value being that human connection um, rather than um, maybe a set of kind of system defined outcomes that, are, that aren't feeding the right things.
1: Yes, No. exactly that. It's a wonderful vision, Paul, you know, of a community doing what it can do naturally, which is care for one another, empowered by real live information on a phone or on a, on a laptop. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, but I imagine that you face one or two challenges in, in moving that forward. And what we like to do on the podcast is... Get real about, about yes. <laughs> some of those, and and invite the audience, and indeed Polly and I, to, to to sort of wonder about them while you eavesdrop on on our wonderings, just to see if anything new occurs that may be helpful. And of course, if there's anyone listening who who also thinks they have a wondering that may help you, then they may contact you as well. So. I know the audience isn't present in the wondering, but I'm hoping that they they are vicariously, as it were. So, do you have a particular challenge, um, Paul, that you you're up against uh, that you'd like to sort of explore a bit here?
2: Yes, I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it is this the fact that that the reality of shifting to that co-design, that uh, lived and living experience coming to the table, is still fairly new. And there's a high, so when I'm engaging, if you like, with the traditional institutions, there's a high degree of nervousness about really adopting that process, because it's almost like the concept of opening Pandora's box. If you go to people and say, what do you need, rather than this is what we're providing you, you're opening yourself up to something you can't control. And so there's a need to find a way of how we well, it, the people that are happy to acknowledge that as a challenge, and literally then come to the table and say, "Well, okay, if we know that's a could be a consequence, how generally can we handle that within this co-design, you know, process? How do we help manage the individual's expectation that's coming to the table to say these are my needs, knowing that we can't service them all at one go, but how do we?" translate that still as a plan of action and then manage the expectation on what's delivered when you know it's 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 to me i think it's still perhaps can be addressed in part by the sort of traditional project management mechanisms of you know just setting out a plan and milestones and just being communicative about that but but i don't know i find i'm still struggling with some of the institutions in that conversation and i think the other element is this sort of sociocracy this the, the business model is not, it's, it, it's out there. there. There are people practicing sociocracy and doing really fantastic and wonderful things. But when I go for the financial institutions that might provide grant funding support to me, introducing that concept to them is still new to them. So it's trying to find those funders out there that are genuinely offering funds to solutions that are pushing the boundaries of traditional models of service delivery of, you know traditional constructs around how an organisation might be governed and run and owned. Even you know that it might—it's not just about cooperative models, for example. It's something a little bit more than a cooperative model. And I'm struggling. I, I did approach the Cooperatives UK about um, their program of, of of trying to get some access to support and myself even paying for that. And um, because my articles didn't truly align to the cooperative principles, which is actually what I wanted the help on, they. Didn't feel they could help me, so it's sort of like, well, <laughs> that's I, I want to get to where you want me to be, but I need your help to get there. And then, so, so there's some gap in the way that, uh, that I think there's innovators, there's too few innovators, I think, and funders sitting at that table of saying, "How do we
1: radically do something different?" Okay. Any questions there, Polly? Um, I
0: do just have a really basic question about this word, sociocracy, right? So. What is
2: that? So it's 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 essentially, I mean, in a very simplistic way, it's about creating an organisational structure that's very flat, and ensuring that in the process of decision making, everybody engaged in in that can have a say and has a say. And the idea is that you take on board objections to a proposal, for example, and you you do it in a series of rounds. So you you by By going round the entire audience sat at the table, everybody has to say, if there are objections, you get the opportunity to understand those objections and explore them. But the point and objective of the exercise is to arrive at an end where you just reach an agreement in principle to go forward. So you might not resolve all the objections, but you you do arrive at a point saying, but but what we have is good enough for us to go forward. And so by doing that, you, you bring... All different voices into the mix. You know, you give opportunity for anybody to offer um, something. So that's where I think you generally get to the truth of co-design, because then you can hear all those different perspectives and those different voices, and you generally arrive at a consensus. Now, how you move forward. So that's that. In a nutshell, is 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 the model. But it's a little bit more to it than that. But,
0: yeah, uh, which is very very challenging to the people who. Are responsible for making the decision. I mean, speaking as a as a chief executive, um, I, who is absolutely committed to those kind of principles, but also, um, you know, it's, it's it's about deciding when, isn't it? What when you use that as a tool?
1: Yes, that might that might come out in your wonderings, Polly.
0: Well, it might well do, but I'm just interested in asking it as a question initially about you know how do you deal with that do you find that fear on the part of senior people
2: I don't know if it's so much fear I think it's just the fact that it's a step into the unknown and so you find yourself in a little bit of a persistent conversation of of sort of selling the idea of educating almost of of translating and then you, you've you sort of got and I, th- I think this is only natural to be fair but you, you've got to give them space to go away and digest what you've just heard and then they'll come back with another set of questions but it's it's reach it's trying to reach that point where you just say look okay it, as imperfect as it might be at this particular stage we we have an agreement we can proceed let's just proceed and then get to that point of ironing out the wrinkles so it's i think you know in a nutshell with the with this system, one of the problems is it's risk-adverse, and this is asking them to take a risk. And that's that's the problem. Their, their, their mode of operandi isn't there, and so we're asking them to shift from where they are to where they need to be to do this, and um, that's a big step.
1: Okay, so Paul, can I invite you to do the um, obligatory switching off as I tried to explain, the reason for this is so that Polly and I don't pick up any facial cues from you while we, we allow our minds to wander freely and wonder about what you, the, the issue you've raised, just to see whether something new emerges for you. It may not, and it may. So if you could turn your screen off um, momentarily, we'll wonder. Then when we are dry... Um, we'll ask you to turn around and tell us of anything new that struck you while you were listening in. Okay, yeah. Polly, do you want to start?
0: One thing that I wonder is how the process of this um, sort of sociocracy process, uh, how you make sure the benefits of that are clear to the people with lived experience who are in the room and making sure that they are getting something out of it and I guess that's something that
1: I would wonder about. Can I just build on that because I wonder whether it needs a different name. I know know it might be a great academic word. Well
0: that's why I asked about it. (laughs) Yeah
1: and you can you can contrast it with democracy and autocracy and sociocracy but I just wonder if you've got to explain it whether it's the right word.
0: Yeah, no. Well, I I agree with that. I guess my other big wondering was around what I touched on about the fear that this will definitely engender. Actually, not only in senior decision makers. I mean, I find that um, it it evoke real genuine, I guess, co production or in much more deep involvement challenges everybody in an organization. And I just wonder whether there's something about lived experience and learned experience and the coming together of those two so that they are both being valued in the conversation but and and but equally valued. And I wonder whether that's kind of a way round that fear, because actually once you you realize that there are people who work in these organizations who have their own lived experience. There isn't a kind of dividing line between people with lived experience and people who are paid to make decisions. There's actually, we all have lived experience and learned experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, to build on that, Around the where the blockage in the system, where livelihoods are perceived to be at stake, and I think Paul described it as institutional nervousness. in In these conversations in the Better Way Network, I hear that a lot, and it it, it comes up. It's so often presented as well. It's a dead end now, you know. They're not they're never going to change because they have got vested interest in keeping the service designed the way it currently is. So you know, we can't go any further and i you know i think that if we're going to really listen to to others and we're going to put relationship first we've got to understand that nervousness and fear because there are also stories of people who come out of institutions service providers into the voluntary sector or into other fields and get much more fulfillment because they feel, they feel they're feel they doing more good outside of the system than they ever could do within it. Now, I wonder whether, what I wonder whether, we need to be much more imaginative around how we help people give voice to the, that institutional nervousness and start to paint alternatives or, or explore alternatives with them that reduces the anxiety and at the same time gets more good done you know, in Paul's case in, in in a in a place, you know, people caring for each other in a keep in a in a place empowered by technology at their fingertips to know who needs what when. So that's what I wonder about.
0: And I wonder in response to that whether some of it is actually about what we value about people's role that is within the system so I, I i kind of think people uh particularly at the moment people who are working within i guess especially elements uh, aspects of the public sector feel very undervalued and part of that actually is because um the system has become overwhelmed and actually there has to be a better way it's like I wonder whether we're actually now at a real crunch point. I wonder whether Paul's work helps us to um, point the way towards valuing different things as a way out of the kind of overwhelmed sense that we currently have, if you see what I mean. Because if people, people will be afraid and the less they feel that their current contribution is valued within this new vision, the less, the more afraid they're going
1: to be. Yeah. And I'm hoping on the podcast we'll hear more from people in the public sector who have broken out of the system, have done things in a better way to, you know, in some cases, get some astounding results, albeit localised rather than nationalised. So I'm I'm all wondered out. Are you, Polly? Yes,
0: I'm really interested now to hear a bit more from Paul.
1: Okay. So, um, Paul, if you could rejoin us just focus on anything that's that was resonated that you know rather than go over it all again what what particularly stood out for you? I,
2: I think there's a narrative in there that I need to work on that I can work on and I think it's reminding people this is actually all about them regardless of what role they have in society or what institution they're working for this is about life it's about their existence within the community and the impact to them and and I think, um, so I think there's something about the narrative, about the personalization of this, the need to remind people or, or enable people to just stay connected and grounded in the communities they're within, despite what role they might be forming. And then I think the other bit in particular about the nervousness, I think it's, it is about how we tap into those other resource opportunities. So if they feel that there is this potential of losing control there is a mitigation to that you know there is a way of identifying how a sudden increase a sudden demand that's going to put bring you know renewed pressure onto individuals that are doing frontline services can actually be mitigated a bit can be managed carefully because i, th- I think and i think the other thing i've got to be mindful of as you, as i think you said polly it's about re-evaluating what people in the service are doing as well. They all care. A lot of people are doing poorly paid, arguably, public service jobs, not because, you know, it's their career choice and they, and it's going to generate wealth. They're doing it because they love what they do.
0: They're not doing it for the money, that's for sure.
2: No, absolutely. And so, um, again, it's, it's about valuing that care in itself. So as I look at my social return on investment measures, I wonder if there's a way I can draw out some very specific measures that re- give us a, a way of re-looking at what these people do in their day-to-day jobs um, and what they do as individuals, not about the service itself, what, what, what positive contribution they make by just going sometimes that extra mile or doing that extra thing that they didn't need to do or spending that extra 10 minutes listening to somebody because all of that is fundamentally important isn't
1: it
0: absolutely
1: you're mentioning the skills of the project planner and I think you know if you go from the uh, this is what we provide to to this what's needed there's almost like a roadmap needed of, of how do you help somebody in a service I, I think it's probably in several services you know because you because you want you know you want people from housing and health and all the different aspects that you've got all the data on yes how do you combine them in a way that they can make this shift from this is what we provide to this is this is how we meet need yes some some stepping stones along the way and how you do that i think would be a help. but we're coming up to the end of our time paul and typically like to give the last word to our guest rather than to polly and i so how would you how would you sum up the, uh, the this last hour or so we've been together.
2: I, I think it's fundamentally important. I love the opportunity to talk about what I do, and I can talk for England anyway. So you know that we have to have a time constraint on it just for that purpose. But no, I think um, re-teasing the ideas out with anybody and giving people the opportunity, as you, you guys have done, to sort of feedback, to, to to ponder it, to explore it, and then come back is so vitally important. It's it, to me, it's co-design in action. And, um, you know, I really relish these types of opportunities to to just share and hear back. Um, I think they're so fundamentally important. And they're, they're, they're the founding principle of what I'm trying to do, which is, you know, hear and respond and design something that hopefully works and is a better fit for purpose. So, yeah, I really look forward to hearing, you know, other feedback from others and other thoughts from others. Um, I think it's, it, you know it's, as long as we're always on the process of continuous improvement it's about innovation it's about moving forward it's about caring at the core we should have as many of these conversations as we possibly can <laughs> well
1: thank you I've really enjoyed it for some people it's not easy to put your what you're struggling with on the line in a public forum and I think that you know to do that and to give listeners the chance to say oh well i struggle with that kind of stuff as well
0: which everyone does which in the everyone case does of, yeah in the case of what you <laughs> raised i think it's fair to say yeah. it's a really universal um struggle
1: so thanks paul thank you yeah
0: thank you so much It's been lovely to meet you
1: Been a real joy that was our conversation with paul white on the next episode polly and i chat with Karin woodley Karin is the Chief Executive Officer of Cambridge House, which is an independent charity fighting poverty, social inequity and injustice. Karin talks about the role radical listening plays in so many aspects of our lives, especially those times when we don't see eye to eye. In the meantime, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with future episodes. You can also get in touch with us and or our guests by using the contact details in the episode notes. Until next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon on A Better Way, the podcast.